Chapter 9 of Organic Evolution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lee Smalley. Organic Evolution by Richard Swan Lull. Chapter 9 Variation and Mutation. The fundamental basic prerequisite to evolution is undoubtedly variation which together with heredity may be regarded as an undeniable fact. Therefore, as has been said, the cause of variation must be a contributory cause of evolution itself. But not all variations are alike, and only certain ones, apparently, are heritable. Hence it is necessary to understand quite clearly what sorts of variations exist, since those that cannot be inherited can have no part in the evolution of a species, as they concern only the individual and not the race. Sorts of Variations Variations may be grouped into three sets of contrasting kinds, six in all, and any character may fall within one or more of the groups. They are 1. Congenital or blastogenic variations, which are determined at conception. The term congenital in its etymology means existing at or doling from birth, but as applied to a variation it refers to the very beginning of an organism's existence. Blastogenic, on the other hand, means occurring in the germplasm. Of course the variation may not, often, cannot, appear until later in life, as, for example, variations in adult size and proportions. Nevertheless, they are fluctuations which have been, as it were, foreordained, and will in the fullness of time come to pass, but may occur at any period from the beginning of embryonic life to the death of the organism. Congenital variations are intrinsic and not due to any external influence, whatever, in contrast to the two acquired variations, which are imposed upon the organism during its lifetime and are due to extrinsic influence under which of these two heads a variation should fall is often almost impossible to decide except by experimental work and sometimes not then but the difference is of fundamental importance if as we are told congenital variations can only be inherited by the offspring see however page one forty five examples of congenital variation are the occasional occurrence of supernumerary digits in man the domestic cat the horse and other forms for they cannot be due to accident or to any external influence, and are occasionally inherited through several generations. On the other hand, the loss of a digit in man through too close proximity to a circular saw would certainly be an acquired characteristic, and long series of experiments have proved conclusively that such variations are without the pale of heredity. Another example which occurs normally in nature would be the hive bees, in which the sex distinction between the workers and queens is an acquired variation, while that between drone and queen or worker is blastogenic. The queen is impregnated but once, the male elements being stored in the seminal receptacle, and used one at a time for the subsequent fertilization of the eggs. The workers build two sizes of eggs in the brood combs, in the larger of which the queen lays an unimpregnated egg, while that laid in the smaller cell is fertilized at the time of extrusion. From the unfertilized egg there arises invariably a drone or male bee, while the fertilized egg produces a potential female. Hence the difference between male and female bee, depending as it does upon impregnation or not, is congenital. 
The ultimate fate of the impregnated egg is subject to the whim of the workers, for while the vast majority of the eggs remain within the small worker cells and, being fed upon a meager and comparatively innutritious diet, develop into workers, the so-called neuters, which are in reality undeveloped females. A select few have their cells enlarged at the expense of the surrounding ones and are fed upon highly nutritious royal pabulum and ultimately develop into mature females or queens. It is said that even after three days of larval life, the humble worker, like the beggar maid of King Cofetua, may become a queen. Thus this variation, being imposed upon the animal during life, is an acquired one. Indeterminate and Determinate Variations may be further classified as 3. Indeterminate, those fortuitous variations which are not subject to any law, but occur in any conceivable direction of change, or 4. Determinate, controlled by some unknown influence and confined to certain definite lines or directions of change, usually in an adaptive direction. Of the first of these two contrasting types there is no doubt, and they are the variations upon which the Darwinian factor of natural selection is supposed to operate. Illustrations are legion, as the comparison of any group of related organisms will show a variation of size, which embraces every dimension of space and combination thereof. Of determinate variations we are not so sure. Some claim that they have no real existence, that there is no such tendency to vary always in a given direction in successive generations, while others, notably Osborne and Eimer, consider these variations, which they call orthogenic, the important ones in evolution. What is apparently an example of determinate variations is that given by Kellogg, who described in 1006 the gradual but obvious change from one dominant type of color pattern to another in the leaf-eating beetle Diabrolica soror on the campus of Stanford University, California, during the last ten years, as is shown by statistical variation studies. It is apparently proved that such change is not explicable on a basis of intraspecies selection, nor can it be interpreted as a direct ontogenetic pertaining to the individual reaction in each succeeding generation to changing climatic conditions. The case is believed to be an example of definitive orthogenetic variation. Many paleontologists think they see repeated instances of orthogenetic variation as they are, as a rule, so profoundly impressed by the adaptive nature of the evolutionary process and by the definitiveness of its direction, that they cannot regard the restraining or selective action of the environment as enough to keep the breed true. For example, the sure way in which the cusps of the teeth in ungulate animals appear in the course of time, so that one can predict the ultimate tooth pattern at the end of an evolutionary series with fair assurance. The rhinoceroses, on the other hand, and the totally unrelated coney hyrax, on the other, have teeth so similar that Roosevelt calls attention to the fact in his African game trails. This is an instance of convergence, which is often the result of what is apparently orthogenetic variation. The overgrown antlers of the Irish deer or the tusks of the Columbian mammoth, see chapters 12 and 34, which in each instance seem to be so far beyond the point to which natural selection would carry them, are considered as further instances of this form of variation. Continuous and discontinuous. 
Variations may also be classed as 5. Continuous, that is, small, abundant, and occurring in graded series. These, if also fortuitous, are the so-called Darwinian variations or fluctuations to be acted upon by natural selection. They are generally quantitative rather than numerical variations, and the increment of change between successive generations is extremely slight. In contrast to the continuous are the six discontinuous variations, which are mostly large or rare. They are also known as sports or saltations, and have been called mutations by de Vries, although the last word in its original usage by Wagen represented a different conception, in that de Vries's mutations may be contemporary in the offspring of a single generation, while Wagen used the term to include stages of transition between Linnaean species occurring in direct lines of racial ascent and never contemporaneous. The great mass of variations come under the head of continuous, the discontinuous ones being relatively rare, although many such have been recorded, as for example the numerous instances of variation from the standard number of digits in vertebrates. In mankind, six, seven, or even eight fingers to the hand have been observed, while the doubling of the foot has brought the number of toes as high as nine on a side. Cattle and horses sometimes show multiple digits, and, on the other hand, Pigs with the two median toes united into one perfectly formed digit, the so-called solid-hoofed pigs, occasionally occur. Sheep sometimes show four horns instead of two, but the peculiarity is that instead of having one pair behind the other, as in the normal four-horned antelope, Tetrasurus quadricornis, the horns always stand in a single transverse series across the skull. One family of goats on an isolated farm near Bozen has four horns which have been inherited for many generations. Bateson. All of these are instances of meristic or number variations and are apt to occur wherever any structure is repeated in numerical series, in the number of segments of worms and arthropods, or in the vertebral column, ribs and muscles, and in the number of appendages. Radially symmetrical forms such as sea anemones and starfish also exhibit it and it frequently occurs among plants, especially in the flowers or leaves, as in the four-leaf clover. Other instances of discontinuous variations are not of this numerical sort, but are mutations of color, form, and size. Such, for example, are the famous new saltations of Lamarck's evening primrose, which breed true and gave rise to de Vries's theory of the origin of new species by saltations or mutations. Some of these vary from the original in size. One is a smooth-leafed form with a more beautiful foliage, and so on. Another example is that of the short-legged ram, which suddenly appeared in Massachusetts in the year 1791. This ram proved to be a potent sire capable of handing on his peculiarity to his progeny, and thus was the founder of a breed of so-called Ancon sheep, whose principal virtue was their inability to jump fences due to the brevity of their limbs. With the introduction of the more desirable merinos, the Ancon sheep disappeared. Causes of Variations The causes of acquired variations are apparent. For every modification which the organism undergoes in its lifetime, in response to an external condition whatsoever, comes under this head. 
the influence of abundance or scarcity of food in giving the animal a greater stature or one less great than that of its brethren the influence of heat cold omnipresent enemies or even the absence of exacting conditions all these make themselves felt upon the individual in greater or less degree but as has been emphasized this individual adaptation however interesting it may be is not evolution therefore in our inquiry into the subordinate factors of evolution it is not the cause of acquired but of congenital variations with which we are concerned these have been summarized by kellogg as follows origin of congenital variations three principal explanations none experimentally proved or even fairly tested are offered for the origin of congenital variations one that there exists in the germ-plasm an inherent tendency or capacity to vary so that there is inevitable variation in all individuals produced from germ-plasm. This variation may be either fortuitous or fluctuating or follow certain fixed or determinate lines. 2. That amphimixis, i.e. biparental parentage, is the principal cause of variation, it seeming logical to presume that individuals produced from germ cells derived from the fusion of germ-plasm coming from two individuals, more or less unlike, would differ slightly from either of the parental individuals. 3. That congenital variation is due to the influence of the ever-varying environment of the germ-cell-producing individuals. Objections Inherent, however, does not clear up in any degree a phenomenon for which we are demanding a causo-mechanical explanation. It will readily be seen that this explanation merely begs the question and offers no real explication of this inherent tendency. For if such really exists, then it is not the cause of variation, but the cause of the tendency to vary, that is a primal factor of evolution. And until that is found, we are as far from a true understanding as ever. The second explanation seems, at first sight, to be a very plausible one, for the mating of two plants or animals, especially if they vary from each other, will give offspring which possess certain characteristics of one parent and certain of the other, especially when, from the nature of these characters, they are mutually exclusive. It will also give rise to variations which combine those of the parents, and thus the offspring will differ from either. But the animals and plants are not produced in this way for hosts of them have but one parent, either due to the simplicity of their organization, such as the asexual protozoa, or to the suppression of sex, i.e. parthenogenesis. Among protozoa, it would be difficult to prove that any variations which could be observed were congenital. The parthenogenetic forms, on the other hand, are all relatively high in the scale of life, such, for instance, as the drone bees and aphids, both of which have been subjected to careful observation by Kellogg. The production of the drone bees from an unfertilized egg has already been emphasized, yet, as Kellogg shows, the variation, especially in the size, proportions, and venation of the wings, which cannot be acquired characters, is greater than among the bees, workers, and queens, produced from fertilized eggs, and hence of biparental parentage. The plant lice, or aphids, are tiny creatures among which rapidity of multiplication during the season of abundance is highly important, and this is obtained by generation after generation, sometimes more than a dozen, being produced without male intervention, 
all of the individuals of each generation being parthogenetic females, which bring forth their young alive. Yet, Kellogg says, in a series of two hundred winged females of the mustard plant Lucae, produced viviparously by agamic, that's without, and marriage, stem mothers, the variation in wing size, in dimension of vein parts, in modification of the venation, in fore and hind wings, and the number of grasping hooks on the hind wings was studied. In all these characters, a notable variation is apparent. No comparison was made with the variation of the aphids of the early spring generation that comes from eggs of bisexual parentage. But it was apparent that in the variations which were observed, there was sufficient range in extent and character to serve natural selection as a species-building basis, if the familiar fluctuating, continuous, or Darwinian variation ever is sufficient for this purpose. Amphimixis is not only not necessary in order to ensure Darwinian variation, but there is no evidence, that I am aware of, to show that it increases this variation. There is, on the other hand, a little evidence, some of it presented herewith, to show that such variation occurs, whether the offspring be of uniparental or biparental ancestry, and to show that this variation is no greater in amphimixis than among parthenogenetically produced individuals. Yet the Neo-Darwinians, headed by Weismann, explain variation as a product of sex, and sex as a product of the necessity for variation. The third cause of congenital variation, that of the influence of the ever-varying environment, will be discussed more in detail in a later chapter, chapter 11. It suffices to say here that we know no means whereby the character of the surrounding medium can make itself felt upon the germ cell itself, which has been shown to be the physical basis of heredity. So thoroughly is the latter apparently insulated from all outside influences. In the protozoa, such influence is understandable, but not in the higher and more complex forms. Then, too, variations arising in this way would approach perilously near being acquired and not congenital ones at all, unless they manifested themselves only in succeeding generations. Theory of Germinal Selection A theory of germinal selection was proposed by Weismann in 1895, and more definitively in 1896. He called it a spring of definitely determined variation, and it was invoked to explain, first, how not only degeneration, physiological, but rudimentation, morphological, occurs in panmixia, i.e., cessation of natural selection. Second, why exactly those variations needed for the development of a certain adaptation appear at the right time. Third, how correlation of adaptation comes to exist, and fourth, how variations are able to develop orthogenetically along a definite line, without depending on the necessity of a personal selection raising them step by step. In 1002, Weismann further applied the theory to the explanation of monsters, of sports, of suddenly appearing sex characters, of specific talents, and still other hitherto unsatisfactorily explained phenomena. Weismann conceives the protoplasm of the cell nucleus to be composed of units called biophores. These biophores can also migrate out into the cytoplasm surrounding the nucleus, which are the bearers of the individual characters of the cell. 
The total character of any cell, its form, makeup, and special properties, is determined by the totality of its biophores. These biophores are not, however, such simple structures as the atoms of the chemist, indeed, they are to be looked on as supermolecules, as complex groups of chemical molecules, of determined character and arrangement. Moreover, as these biophores are life units, they possess the essential characteristics of life, that is, the capacity to assimilate food, to grow, and to reproduce themselves by division. The number of different biophores is almost inconceivably enormous, for it must equal the possibilities of variety in character exhibited by, or capable of being exhibited by, all the cells of the body. But as each biophore is made of many complex molecules, which may vary among themselves, and also vary in their structural relation to each other inside the biophore, it is not difficult, perhaps, to imagine the possible variety of biophores to be equal to the possible variety of cell characters. These biophores are conceived to be united into fixed, indissoluble groups called determinants, each determinant containing all the biophores necessary to determine the whole character of any one kind of cell. Like the biophores, the determinants can assimilate food, grow and multiply by division. While in each specialized body cell there needs to be but a single determinant, namely one of the special kind conforming to the special kind of cell, in the germ cells there must be conceived to be every kind of determinant, which may be found in all the body cells taken together. But, fortunately, by virtue of the determinant's capacity for multiplication, it is not necessary to assume that there exists in the germ a determinant for every cell that is to develop in the body but only one for every different kind of cell. All cells exactly alike can be supplied with similar determinants by the multiplication of the proper kind. Now Weismann's theory of germinal selection rests upon the assumption of a competition or struggle of the determinants in the germ plasm for food and hence for opportunity to grow, to be vigorous and to multiply. The germ cells derive their food, as do the other cells and tissues of the body, from the general food streams circulating around and through the cells. Weismann, recognizing the absolute principle of slight variation everywhere in nature, it is practically impossible to conceive of identity, believes that the initially slightly stronger or more capable determinants will be able to take up larger supplies of food, even to the extent of lessening the supply for neighboring determinants, perhaps to the degree of starvation. Indeed, he suggests a reason for the initial slight variations in vigor of the determinants in the probability that the food will reach the various determinants in slightly, purely fortuitously variable quantity, so that the first inequality in vigor of the determinants will depend on the fortuitous variability of food supply while thereafter the variability in the determinants thus produced will enable the stronger ones to draw to themselves or take up more food and thus accumulate determinately the initial fortuitous inequality. Kellogg. End of chapter 9. Recording by Lee Smalley.